Is it wrong to love your country? When have you crossed the line from something like good patriotism into, say, idolatrous nationalism? Uh, are we seeing a rise, especially among conservatives, in uh, a, a dangerous form of American nationalism uh, in our country right now, especially among Christians? We'll be talking about that and much more on today's Theology on Air. I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor here at First Lutheran. I'm here all by myself today. We were uh, we were uh, reached out to—that's poor English—by uh, the uh, author of this book, uh, "Why Do the Nations Rage?" David Ritchie. He's a pastor out in Amarillo. I'll let him introduce himself in just a moment. But they uh, reached out to us and said, "Would this be of interest to you?" And I said, "Sure. Send the book. That sounds uh, of interest to me." As a raging American nationalist myself, I thought, you know, I better. Uh, make sure I'm not committing idolatry or actually worshiping demons or something like that um, with uh, with my love of America. So we're going to try to figure out if I'm on the right side of that today. But uh, he, they reached out to us. I thought that would be interesting. So we're going to be really looking at sort of a nationalism and maybe Christian nationalism and, and how to define it, how to understand it, you know, working through, uh, through his book. So uh, I'm here all by myself. No, Sarah. Uh, I was the only one who did the hard work of uh, reading the book, but it's a short book. I'd encourage folks to get it. Again, Why Do, Why Do the Nations Rage? Uh, the Demonic Origin of Nationalism by David uh, A. Ritchie. And speaking of, David, uh, you're a, uh, if if I uh, understand your, uh, your your theology correctly, a Reformed Baptist in Amarillo. Is that right? Essentially so, yeah. Um, I have pastored Redeemer Christian Church for the last 10 years and a little bit of change and um, just love this community. Uh, this is where I'm from. Uh, I have deep roots in West Texas and uh, this is my people. The, the, it's a community that I deeply love and uh, essentially our church is a church replant. It was a historic mm. church in our city that was in the process of dying um, that coincided providentially with my journey of beginning a new church plant. And so I was in the early stages of kind of building out a core team and getting a group of people together. And uh, by the grace of God, that core team was able to merge together with an existing uh, group of older saints um, at West Amarillo Christian Church. And we replanted mm. and became Redeemer Christian Church. And, and so so I'm kind of a little bit of an evangelical mongrel mutt theologically. Um, I kind of grew up in a uh, like larger, charismatic uh, megachurch and uh, had some formative experiences there. My mom and dad both come out of a more Baptist tradition. I have went to a, a Presbyterian seminary, I graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary, and um, a, a lot of my closest friends in ministry are Anglicans. And so I don't know what that tells me um, about myself other than the fact that um, I, I've had a lot of exposure to different traditions of the church and um, and, and just am, am grateful for the opportunity to do ministry here in this place that I'm from um, among a people that I deeply love. Cool. Well, um, that's cool. Replants are good. You know, uh, we're definitely living through an era of um, change in the in the church at large and i i think there's a lot of change around i don't know if i'd say around this issue per se but i do think that christian churches are finding and christians are finding themselves wanting to or affiliating with churches who um tend to share some of the same concerns about where say the country is going i'm not necessarily saying that the politics are all the same but in most cases i think you will find that most members in most churches sort of do probably have the same political views. Um, 
And so that can kind of turn into an us versus them mentality or, you know, rah-rah America or rah-rah America the way it used to be. And that's what I want to happen again. I'm not saying any of that's right or wrong. I'm just saying, I think that because the moral issues are so prevalent, something like abortion, marriage, et cetera, uh, the culture wars, it, in, in other words, are so, you know, relevant and, and politically kind of one-sided or the other that churches ended up, you know, having ended up falling in that camp. So, but that said, good for you for, um, for, for planning a church and doing that hard work. And, um, glad to know that, that, uh, is it like a church building kind of has, has been saved in the process? Is that kind of how that works? Essentially? Yeah. We, um, yeah. were essentially granted uh, a facility that carried no debt with it and would have been you know much nicer than anything that I'm sure a church plant core team would have been able to build, um, yeah. anytime in this century at least. But yeah, it's, uh, it, but the other thing that's really amazing about it, um, Evan, is that it turned our church into instantaneously a much more multi-generational church than it would have been if it had just been a church plant, I think. And so mm. from day one, it, it kind of uh, created this multi-generational um, community of people that um, almost from the very beginning, it was easy for people to have at least opportunities to misunderstand one another. But we really did work in Christian charity towards one another in, in unity. And it's um, by the grace of God, something that has been really restorative, a church that yeah. should have died, but has by God's grace been able to to be alive and um, and retain uh, many of the, the older members um, yeah. that, that began that journey with us. Well, you know, I think we need each other. You know, the old, you know, our church is, will be a hundred and 75 years old in a couple of years our church building will be 100 years old in a couple of years so yeah we need we need each That's other amazing. um and you know the older churches with some of the newer churches sometimes it's easier to start a new church than to kind of keep an older one going for whatever reason but but your love for your people i, I think inspired this book to a degree because you seem to be a little bit concerned that you know and maybe have lost some members over this uh that um they're their their feelings towards their country had kind of maybe crossed a line a little bit. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I read some concern in your book for maybe your membership or the membership of the Christian church as a whole, that there may be in the name of Christ advocating for something like nationalism. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. The book is intended as a work of pastoral theology. Um, it's it's motivated from a place of pastoral concern, and and this is something that I think that most people who have been leaders in ministry for you know the the last decade or two have have definitely noticed is that there just seems to be um, an increasing ramping up of uh, culture wars and um, uh, political discussions, seemingly infiltrating and soaking into almost everything that we do. Yeah. And that, that's something that I've been used to for, for the years that I've been in ministry, um, but definitely um, it's accelerated, um, it's seemingly exponentially in the, in the last few years. And what I began to notice um, were, were a few things. I mean, number one, there, there was just a, a practical concern where I was immediately seeing people that I know and love be impacted in such damaging ways. Um, uh, I've, I've been privy to witnessing, um, you know, a, a marriage dissolving, and one of the reasons that um, that that led to that demise, uh, a contributing factor at least, was the involvement of QAnon, and that broke my heart. That's something that I saw as a actual pastoral reality. Um, I, I know and am personal friends with um, a pastor that lives in our region that was recruited to um, be a part of a militia, 
And mm. some of the more, um, what you would see is probably the more extreme sides of things. Um, definitely not normal, not what you would say the typical, just the, the average person that really deeply cares about their country. But the fact that I was actually having personal experiences in very few degrees of separation from some of the more um, extreme ends uh, of people that were doing this as professed Christians definitely caught my attention. And even more, just from a practical standpoint, I, I was noticing in the lives of many Christians in our community that they were so willing to eagerly and clearly and out of the overflow of their heart share their political views with a sense of um, deep urgency and a sense mm -hmm. of personal appeal, um, wanting people to kind of get in line with what they felt politically and the actions that corresponded to that. And I began to see that in such a, a way that it was almost displacing their capacity to witness and bear witness to Christ. And mm -hmm. so it was, it was almost as if the functional good news that was alive in their heart, that, that animated their am, uh, imagination, that really animated their passions and their devotion and their allegiances seemed to be sinking down into the political arena. But what I found fascinating about that is a lot of times it was done within Christian theological categories, you know, um, like, we're, we're using terms like salvation and apocalypse and, um, you know, uh, like essentially anointed ones. And we're applying those and putting those on, importing those to our, our essentially our, our political ideology. And, yeah. and so what I began to be convinced of is that, man, I, I'm seeing this as um, essentially a challenge, a deep uh, challenge to my ministry as a uh, as a pastor who who wants to grow this congregation and understanding the gospel and reaching our community with the gospel that this uh, essentially a rival religion was beginning to compete with it in a way that i felt like people were almost unable to see and and so i wanted to try to do the hard work of okay there's a lot of sociologists that are paying attention to this issue. There's a lot of historians, a lot of political scientists that have done a lot of work on creating this body of literature and study um, that is nationalism studies. But I wanted to attempt to be able to locate this phenomenon mm -hmm. in biblical and theological terms. Of, can I at least try to introduce some terms that could help us locate this um, theologically. And, and another goal of mine was I, I wanted to not write a book that was just simply bashing and shaming um, what people would describe as Christian nationalists in America or American Christian nationalism or white Christian nationalism. I, I really did want to write a book that I hope would be persuasive. And so for that reason, what I chose to do was try to almost take a broad angle view of the phenomenon of nationalism in the, the wide scope of history. Mm -hmm. Well, let's kind of define some terms because, uh, as I told you before we started recording, when when I heard about the the book and the project, I said, "Well, I think a lot of it's going to depend on how you kind of define nationalism." And um, one of the things you you say is that there's there's no purely scientific definition of the nation that can be universally agreed upon. Um, I think that's in a footnote, and um, and there are some. Other, so anyway, let kind of tell us what you mean by by maybe nation and by mm -hmm. nationalism. And I, I so appreciate you bringing up that distinction because there is a distinction between nations and nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a really crucial distinction because, um, in fact, some people that 
that did not read my book but just saw the title immediately presume in some cases that like I'm against nations or national identity. And, and that's just simply not the case. Um, I, I think that nations have a complex role in scripture and redemptive history. Um, they're both recipients of God's wrath and grace, right? Um, but the key idea when we're approaching nation is that number one, we have to actually acknowledge that it is this really odd nebulous term, right? That sometimes refers to a state, sometimes it refers to a geographical terrain or land, sometimes it refers to a people group, and a lot of times that people group is defined by ethnicity, but you can never exclusively define the term nation in any one of those terms. And so one of the, the most important books that's been written in this field of literature is a book by Benedict Anderson, and he wrote um, the, the book Imagined Communities. And essentially that's how he defines a nation, is that a nation is an imagined community that is defined in some way by a shared national identity. And so that's why, you know, I, I went to Washington DC for the first time in my life only in, in 2021. And even though I'd never been there, even though I'd never met anyone who had lived there, um, there's still a sense that this is my nation. Right. And even mm -hmm. though this is the first conversation you and I have ever shared together, there, there's a sense of um, correct presumption that we're both Americans, that we, we share something in common together. And, and so the, the nation is that sense of imagined community that we share together. And, and again, that's nebulous and that lacks a, a particular level of high definition um, distinction. But that, that just kind of goes with the flow. We just have to embrace the reality that it's kind of a nebulous concept. And um, when you try to define nation too specifically, it actually kind of creates certain problems because you're necessarily trying to be able to um, potentially exclude people who otherwise would have a legitimate yeah. place in a, in a given nation. And so, yeah. And yeah. one of my just one of my thoughts, and we'll, we can come back to this, but one of my thoughts in, in reading the book is, is going to be too like, well, is America is America. I mean, Americans like to think that America really is kind of a different sort of place that it's, that it's, that it is a nation as a state, but it's the, it's the kind of social contract um, as defined by the, you know, the declaration of the constitution that sort of defines the people. So not an ethnicity, um, although, you know, arguments can be made about certain white privilege, for example, but not an ethnicity, not a religion, uh, but really a people who kind of bind themselves to this idea that we'll live in freedom and we'll respect your freedom, you know, and, you know, you can get into like John Adams, you know, a nation that isn't a religious people can't sort of live by this constitution and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's, you know, there's a, there's a toleration of freedom, but there's the expectation that this people will sort of do the right thing. Um, that's how the freedom will last. But oh, I do want to kind of come back to that. Um, so I would say that because so in in a sense, I would say America, I would like to think is better, if you will, than some of the historic nations and some of the biblical nations that really are defined by, uh, you know, their deities and by their ethnic, you know, identity, identification and things like that. But let, let me read um, a uh, you, you mentioned there's a, a you, you quote from uh, Yoram Hazoni uh, yes. in your book, and, and he, he offers a way of, of kind of thinking of nationalism that I quite like. So I, I read it and I was like, yes, sir, out, out by the margin. So let me just read that. And then I want you to come back and kind of say, but that's kind of maybe not really what we're talking about. We're talking about something a little bit more intense. Right. But let me just read it to put it out there. 
Uh, to some, nationalism means nothing more than the belief that nations possess a natural right to exert self-governance, self-sovereignty, self-determination, and independence. Nationalism is, as Israeli philosophy, I'm, I'm sorry, I got, so I got this wrong, but Yoram Harzoni, Hazoni writes, a principal standpoint that regards the world as governed best when nations are able to chart their own independent course, cultivating their own traditions and pursuing their own interests without interference. Thus, nationalism may be conceived as that which stands against the oppression of foreign imperialism, or to many contemporary nationalists, nationalism simply means putting the interest of the nation first over and against the cumbersome and often self-defeating entanglements of globalism. To which, you know, again, I say, huzzah, you know, yeah. uh, if that's what nationalism is, I'm, I'm probably 100% on board with that. Mm -hmm. That's not quite where you stop, though. So talk about the distinction a little bit between that, that definition of nationalism, which says we're going to put the nation, the interest of our nation first over and against maybe some empirical globalist, you know, forces, uh, rather than what it maybe can become, which is kind of something more dangerous. Absolutely. So I, I wanted to engage Hazoni and, and guys like Rich Lowry that have made positive cases for nationalism and where a, a gentleman like Hazoni, who is a brilliant scholar, um, has been criticized in his book, Virtue of Nationalism, is that he uh, is, has been charged with kind of redefining the term nationalism in a way that kind of mm. um, suits his suits basically let, let's pursue the interest of the nation first. Mm. And so with that said, like, I mean, that that definition has kind of caught on in, in certain subgroups of people. And, and so there is a, a lot of talking past one another, especially online, in terms of what these we, these terms mean. And I, I'm hoping that the robust discussion would maybe allow the dust to settle on some agreed or shared terminology just so mm -hmm. that we, we can have clear conversations. And, and so historically and in the broader scope of nationalist studies or um, studies that have kind of um, engaged nationalism going all the way back to really where you see kind of an explosion of nationalism studies is right after World War II um, because everybody in the intellectual world is asking the question, how can we make sure this never happens again? Yeah. And so like they've, uh, and you know, that's one of the things is typically in, in the Western world, everybody agrees that, you know, Nazism was a very bad thing. How can we prevent that from happening? And so there was this explosion of literature that happened then. And that's where really you start seeing this distinction that I, I think is helpful, but it's somewhat problematic at the same time where nationalism is not primarily, you know, uh, defined against globalism, but more of something that's defined against patriotism. And so I feel like if we're going to go, go with the, the body of literature and how these terms have been used by the most amount of people in this field, that nationalism is, is best understood as something that conveys a sense of when love for the nation twists into something that is very nefarious, something that's very dangerous, something that can create a, a sense of fanaticism and devotion that is able to justify horrific things in history. And a lot of times that the one thing I would say that I've, I've seen that unifies all versions of nationalism in some sense is that it's almost always a reaction against a perceived threat against whatever the nation is envisioned to be. So it might be globalism. It might actually be colonialism. And so another time mm -hmm. where you see nationalism mentioned as a positive thing and much of scholarship is like when 
you know, African countries are throwing off, you know, colonial oppression and, and things like that and kind of asserting their own mm-hmm. uh, independent chart for, for history and self-determination, right? Or, or, or Gandhi sort of threw off the British yeah. rule, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, but at the same time, right, like you got India and Pakistan, like that, that animosity that is between those two nations is basically between two competing versions of religious nationalism in many ways. And the partition that happened there um, really was defined on on those lines. And so I I think that it's, it's a clear distinction, at least that I try to be able to make in the book is that let, if we're going to use patriotism as a positive term, let's define that clearly as a rightly ordered love for one's nation. And if you don't like patriotism, maybe use the term um, national solidarity, a, a sense of positive national identity. Um, you could even view it as an extension of love for neighbor that lives within this confines of this mysterious nebulous entity that we call the nation. That, that that's something that's necessary. That's a good thing. But just like any other idol, if we take a good thing and we make it to an ultimate thing, th- that's when distortions can happen. And yeah. that's when things fall apart. and what I've noticed just as I was you know, asking this particular question of the scriptures and, and trying to view it theologically is that this particular form of human idolatry is uniquely attached to dark spiritual forces. Yeah. Um, it's one of the oldest forms of idolatry that exists, and it is something that um, is just hauntingly able um, to inspire humans, I believe, at a spiritual level um, to do horrific things. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's uh, let's say uh, let's talk about the, the way that the Bible will talk about um, the the sort of the existence of nations and the fact that there are sort of gods that are leading other nations. And again, I think when we say the word nation, we're maybe not always talking about a geographical boundary only, but a, a people group or certainly you know, an ethnicity or something like that. But you talk about the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Um, so let me just read, this is a Deuteronomy 32, eight, eight through nine, as you quote it in your book, I'll just read it. So kind of lay the groundwork here. Uh, when the most high gave to the nations, their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion in his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. I'm sorry, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob and his allotted heritage. So um, talk about that a little bit. What do you mean when you say Deuteronomy 32 worldview? Certainly. Another term that can be kind of a cognate term for that is cosmic geography. It's something that a number of Old Testament scholars have noted in, in terms of biblical literature that would say that Deuteronomy chapter 32, or at least chapters uh, or uh, verses 8 through 9, are essentially forming a theological commentary on the event at Babel. And so at Babel, instead of obeying the cultural mandate, which is to, you know, be fruitful and multiply and essentially be able to uh, be God's vice regents upon the planet and and, and be good stewards of creation, uh, mankind kind of congeals. It's the beginning of the kingdom of Babel in many ways. It's the, the moment where we see the first true emergence of the kingdom of man as an entity. And um, rather than going forth into the world, they're trying to come up into God's space and and they're trying to essentially either manage him or, you know, kind of co-opt him for their own cause, or basically in some ways attempting to colonize heaven with their own agenda, you can might say. 
essentially what um, Old Testament biblical you know, scholars would say about Deuteronomy chapter 32 is that Deuteronomy chapter 2 gives us extra spiritual insight on what's happening at that moment. Um, some have even called it almost the Romans one moment of the Old Testament. Essentially, mm-hmm. God is saying, okay, you, you want idolatry, you want the kingdom of man, you can have it. And mm-hmm. almost in his wrath turns them over. And so what Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 8 and 9 say is that God essentially at Babel turns the nations over to the Bene Elohim, the, the sons of God, um, that later on we can see um, almost taking on this role as these pagan patron deities that almost have a, a sense of spiritual authority and oppressive um, weight over the nations of the world, over the pagan nations of the world. But out of the nations, he calls Abraham and Abraham's family and, and says, this will be my people. This will be my heritage. And, and through Abraham's family, he launches this plan of redemption that is going to ultimately bring salvation to the nations. And, and so yeah. he brings judgment on the nations at one level, but he's also in that same moment. And that's why it's so important to see Genesis chapter 12 flowing out of Genesis chapter 11 is that this is also something that we're going to see God's inauguration for his plan of redemption as as it's coming through the family of Abraham. And so it's essentially basically saying that at Babel, not only did the language kind of disperse into their various people groups, but they were also plunged under a a, a spiritual darkness, um, a spiritual dominion that ultimately is, is not defeated until the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so you would say throughout, you know, and again, Babel is in Genesis 11. Abram is called in Genesis 12. So, you know, there's a quite a distinct uh, narrative shift and, and kind of style, I think, in many ways. I mean, most people regard Genesis 1 to 11 as kind of a separate piece of literature. Not, not that it wasn't necessarily written by the same author. I'm not saying that, but it's kind of a, a prologue almost to kind of set the mm-hmm. stage for then the, the covenant process with Abram and so forth. But those two things are sort of back to back. So you would say kind of from Genesis 12 on, there is this sense that the nation, the people that will come from Abram, um, they are the people blessed and chosen by Yahweh, uh, you know, the Lord, the God of the God of the world, but you know, mm-hmm. the God of Christianity and and the Old Testament. Um, and the other nations, though, they have they have gods, little you know, sort of lowercase g gods. But Paul is actually going to uh, tell us in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible would actually say that they're demons. Was right. that kind of fair to say? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I think it's best to interpret these things. It's and it's it's interesting how the Bible does this because it, on one hand it affirms that idols are dead, right? It's mm-hmm. worshiping you know silver and gold or wooden objects made by human hands, and that like they're they're just there's a, a sense of nothingness to them. But on the other hand, to worship idols and to sacrifice to idols is also to share fellowship with demons in some sense, and yeah. uh, you, you really get this especially. There's a lot of Psalms that kind of talk about um, the Lord being the most high over all gods. Um, and again, I, I think that's not just a statement about um, God and the angels that are in heaven. Um, that, that is a, a statement of basically that there are actual spiritual entities. They're, they're not the creator. They're still a part yeah. of creation, right? right. But, but they have a level of agency um, that um, oppresses and creates injustice on the earth and and blinds people to the reality of God, um, which, which is in, in all of this too, it should be noted is, is indeed wrapped up in national identity, you know? And so um, these ancient Near East nations have 
patron national deities that yeah. are worshipped. And, and to be a good member of that that nation, that means you're worshipping this pagan deity. And so if you're a good Moabite, you're going to be worshipping Chemosh. You know, it, yeah. it's 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 a part of the the whole idea. If you're a good Ammonite, you're going to be worshiping Moloch. Yeah. And that's by the way, it's what makes the conversion of Ruth so unbelievably extraordinary. Um, because hmm. when she is saying your people are going to be my people and my God is going to be your God, um, those are essentially that's a reduplication of the same statement almost. Um, hmm. by, by me coming to Israel yeah. and joining myself with your people, already I have made a theological statement that Yahweh will be my God. Yeah. And I'm I'm basically um, you, you have this glorious instance of the the Gentile ingrafting into the the people of the Lord um, that yeah. that is a foretaste of so much of what is to come in the story of redemption. And that might explain then why in the New Testament, so called, we uh, see such really hatred for the Gentile nations and such fear. Now, I would argue that the the second temple period is is sort of distinct from the first temple period and that in the first temple period, as we see in like Jeremiah or Isaiah, there's there is a lot of idolatry going on within the Israelite community, within the, you know, the children of Jacob and all of that. Uh, and the prophets are saying, no, 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 don't do that. That's wrong. You're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're offending God with this idolatry. Um, by the, by the, once the temple is destroyed uh, and the people go into exile, then they, then they sort of seem to come back with a little bit more earnestness about not doing that again. Yes. Uh, so, so there seems to be uh, a desire for like purity, you know, separation from the Gentiles, yeah. you know, the whole thing about the dogs, you know, the Samaritans are called dogs and the Syrophoenician woman and the dogs and the crumbs mm -hmm. and all that. So, right. So, or, or the good Samaritan, you know, these mm -hmm. are shocking stories because there is this huge divide between the people of God, Israel and, um, and the Gentiles who have demonic gods. Is that, is that fair to say? I, I think it is fair to say. And I think it shows you why, by by acknowledging that level of demonic agency, which even when we kind of like grow up in the West, it's almost hard for us to imagine. Like I, I read one author that I was really impressed with when he said this. It was basically after the Enlightenment, we barely had enough room for God, let alone angels and demons. And so there's almost like <laughs> yeah. this ability, even by conservative, evangelical biblical scholars to almost just have it as a blind spot to kind of like really think through issues about the angelic or the demonic. But I think by acknowledging that level of demonic agency, it becomes very clear why it was possible for the people of God to be so easily seduced by the gods of the nations when they come into the promised land, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you have this whole speech by Joshua, you know, at the end of Joshua, he's basically saying, okay, we're here now, but don't be seduced by the gods of the nation. Um, as for me and yeah. my house, we're going to serve the Lord, but you need to know that, you know, your forefather, Abraham, like, he, he he was once an idol worshiper too, and so yeah. you're, you're not above this. No one's above this. Um, th th there's a seductive quality, and, and so early on, especially what you, uh, what you were describing as the first temple period, there is this emphasis on really um, the the people of God trying to separate themselves and preserve. You know, um, well, there's there's admonishment by the prophets rather to, to basically say like, be careful from that influence that's coming in. Don't act like the nations. Um, and ultimately, they sadly succumb to that temptation and are sent into exile. And then yeah. the second temple period, it's it's almost like they overcorrect on the other side too, because like if you read the Targums, um, mm -hmm. which are the Aramaic kind of like paraphrase of the Old Testament, that's how we actually know a lot of what was going 
going on in Second Temple theology at that time. And hmm. one of the major themes of, uh, of the differences that we see in the Targums related to, you know, the Old Testament is how oftentimes they will transform passages that are about the redemption of the nations in places like Isaiah into the judgment of the nations. Oh, and so it's, it kind of mm. forms that sense of animosity that becomes such a, an active part of the landscape once we get to the New Testament. Yeah, and I wasn't defending the the ethos of the Second Temple period certainly, at all. I, I agree, it is an overshoot. And when people say, "Oh, well, Jesus had left his, you know, most criticism for the for the uh, for the religious leaders," I'm like, "Well, yeah, that's true," uh, because the religious leaders had sort of fallen off the other side of the ditch, if you will, into uh, something like legalism. Mm-hmm. Um, although there's an there's an interesting there are some there's interesting arguments now that actually the Pharisees in some ways were more lax, right? Because they allowed divorce and things like that. So their legalists can be lax as well. It's just that they're strict about the things that they, you know, lax in the moral law, but legalistic in the, you know, on, on the civic code or something like that. Anything that makes their list, they're going to be really hardcore on. Right. But anything that's not on that list, it's kind of a, it it becomes a blind spot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you would say Paul in several cases in ways references this notion that the nations are sort of run by gods and that sort of thing. Talk, talk about that a little bit and I'll, I'll see if I can maybe pull up some quotes too, but. um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so essentially what I'm trying to argue for, and I'm not alone in this, there's a body of literature that supports this, but when Paul uses terms that in the KGV are termed as principalities and powers, um, what in more modern translations are usually termed as rulers and authorities that he's, playing into this tradition that was ultimately established in Deuteronomy chapter 32, but it appears elsewhere in you know Psalm chapter 82. Um, it t- definitely plays a large role in the book of Daniel, um, where you have basically these spiritual forces of darkness that have an oppressive rule over the nations. Well, Paul definitely embraces that idea when he's talking about the redemptive accomplishment of Christ as it relates to the powers. And so, one of the things that I think has really been illuminated to me personally is really the significance of the ascension, you know, the doctrine of the ascension as, you know, Christ has died, he is risen, but he's also ascended into a place of authority to where he has been seated above all thrones and dominions, all rulers and authorities. He, he has been basically exalted above um, the, the once ironclad power of the spiritual powers of darkness. And, and so, Essentially, what happens, the significance of that is that Christ now has all authority in heaven and earth. And because of that, we can go forth and make disciples of all nations. Mm. This is not just an Israel game only or Israel primary only. Basically, the the thrones and the powers and the principalities, they've been delegitimized. They have been dethroned in the authority that they once have. And, And so the nations of the world are now free game for the gospel. Um, they can receive the good news of, of Jesus, the conquering king who has conquered the powers. And, and so um, there is this um, amazing um, capacity for people of the Gentile nations um, to come in droves. I mean, just this exponential growth of the early church, primarily coming from the Gentile nations because that, that spiritual power and authority hasn't been all the way annihilated. It's not all the way destroyed. Yeah. That they have been de- dethroned. And so, uh, of course, um, you know, that brings in an interesting point that the powers are still active, right? Um, they don't have that same place of dominion, but they still are actively trying to deceive and delude the people of God almost to go back into their old forms of 
ethnic and cultural allegiance and to their own national identity and to uh, observe that as something that is worthy of their ultimate allegiance and devotion. And so that that's like a really large role that the powers and principalities are playing in a book like Ephesians is they're trying to essentially convince the Jew and the Gentile that they're no longer one man. Yeah. And so when the Jew and Gentile are as one man and they embrace that knowledge and they're they're appropriating that which Christ has already accomplished, it is a spiritual demonstration and de- display to the powers. And mm. it's 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 almost like Jesus spiking the football and showing like look look at the church, look at this multi-ethnic group of people that is coming together and their allegiance isn't to any kingdom of man or um cultural identity it really is um to christ and his his glory yeah let me just read a little bit this is from colossians 2 but quoted in your book uh should be familiar to most of our listeners i would think but see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit uh, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, stoic chaos, the Greek word there of the world, and not according to Christ. He disarmed the rulers, archos, and authorities, exousios, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And boy, that, that, is, a, that is a verse that has taken all kinds of direction. Uh, in, the, in like, for example, people say, oh, see, the, you know, the Bible's against philosophy. Well, no, he's talking right. about, you know, cap, you know, empty philosophy or something like that. And, oh, well, traditions are all, you know, are all bad. Well, no, they're not all bad, but be careful that they don't overcome the revelation of God or something like that. But that said, he talks about the spirits and these, these rulers and authorities and to be careful, you know, not to rule them. And so let me just make commentary too, that, you know, of course, I think we would, we would definitely agree that um, people can definitely be tempted um, to, uh, you know, it, they, they want to be in fellowship with people who are like them. Uh, I think people will have a natural affinity uh, among people in their own ethnic group. Um, I think we, uh, you, you see, I, I think of something like gangs, you know, if you ever hear, listen to people really talk about gangs and who joins them, you know, we think they're just violent criminals. And a lot of them end up being very violent criminals, but a lot of them have no home life, no family life. And what they, what they're offered in a gang is really a family and a tribe. Um, and a tribe that does some illegal activity, but, you know, but, you know, so I think that there is something in all of us that wants to be kind of in a group that is like us, like-minded, affirms us for who we are, et cetera. And that's something that we really have to be on the lookout for. And the beauty of Christ is that it always from the beginning has had this totally universal call on all people that the gospel really is for all people. It really does break these boundaries, famously Jew and um, um, I'm so, you know, I said famously, then I screwed up Galatians. Jew and Gentile. Yeah. Jew and Gentile, you know, male, female, slave and free. Right. And so, and you do see early Christian fellowships that have these, you know, have all of these people. And so to that, we would, we would want to not only say a hearty amen, but we would also want to say that our own Christian fellowship should look something like that. Right. Now we can't make that happen. I don't right. think making, you know, I mean, I was in a church body that had quotas, right you know, on like committees and, you know, at the, at the church wide level. And I don't think you can force it. Right. I think the gospel should be go out and, you know, and and whoever responds, responds, but, um, but so you would say then would, would you say that the, that the, the gospel message was particularly attractive to Gentiles, 
and this is something I have to say I've never really thought about, but because of the freedom from the bondage of these sort of demonic influences of the tribe or nation, they were now lifted in Christ. And so the people now felt freedom that they didn't know before. I think that's exactly the case. Um, wow. I mean, okay. it's, it's, uh, it's such a unique idea. It's almost hard to enter into this mind space right now, but we, we typically interpret something like, you know, the household colds, uh, household colds codes, sorry, yeah. related to marriage as something that is, you know, extremely oppressive or something that's exempt against, you know, personal liberty. Um, that's how a lot of people in our culture might be able to take those ideas. And I think that day and age, they were, prom they, it was a radical vision of human dignity that, mm. you know, cast a vision for, you know, covenantal marriage and that viewed sex, not as a commodity to be consumed but as something that was sacred and even spoke to a spiritual reality hmm. um, uh, of Christ and his uh, union with his bride. Um, I, I really do think that um, what the church was welcoming the nations into was this radical way of life that was only possible because Jesus had risen from the dead. Hmm. And that it was, it was not only good and true, it was beautiful. Yeah. And, and I think a part of that is like when you're under the oppression of the powers and a great uh, passage on this is Psalm 82, um, life is broken. You know, life is broken under the rule of the powers. Yeah. And um, that, that's something that Christ is ultimately in, inviting us into a, a redignified vision of humanity. And, mm -hmm. and there's something that I think is immensely attractive to that. And I would argue that moving forward into history, where the church is, if not the the norm, but it's at least established, you see that it has to be destroyed in, uh, for example, proto-Marxist, which the French Revolution was. You know, you read the history of the French Revolution, you're like, man, these people are like communists. This is this is not what I thought it was at all. I mean, and who do they yeah. kill? Who do they who do they guillotine? Who do they send off? Uh, the priests, you know, usually are some of the first to go. Same with the the the, the Communist Party in China, you know, that uh, clamp, clamped down and is clamping down mm -hmm. still to this day in the, in the Christian church. So, you know, there, there are nationalist um, people today, right, in various, you know, schools of thought, if you will, cultures, uh, ethnicities, whatever it may be, that, that, want, that want monopolistic thought control, and Christ doesn't allow that. Right, Christ, Christ, Christ is always standing there saying, "No, I am Lord and I am King, and if I am, then you can't be." You know? Absolutely, and you bring so, up two really good points. If I could interject there on, yeah. on one idea, one um, going back to something you said earlier in the discussion of you know America being um, at least unique as a nation in a in a positive way, um, you need no further evidence than the French Revolution to be able to make that assertion very very clear, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean that they're happening contemporaneously uh, mm -hmm. around the same time at least and one just ends in absolute horrific bloodshed tyranny i mean just all the awful things that a state can do and uh, the other one ends in this this form of government that seemed to almost like catch lightning in the bottle of of this new way of of doing uh, civic society and so i think that's a really important point um to be able to bring out there of like there's there's so much to truly appreciate um about the american system of governance but secondly um the french revolution also shows another point that i i, I want to make clear to listeners as well is that nationalism in and of itself isn't inherently right or left i mean you can you can have mm -hmm. yeah. um right-leaning nationalists but you can also equally have left-leaning nationalists um the, the french revolution was a great example of that um yeah. many 
nationalist scholars would classify Stalin as a nationalist. I mean, he's there's things that he's written that are in, you know, uh, nationalism readers, um, so, so to speak. And, and so one of the key things to be able to even kind of understand about that, that conversation on nationalism and whenever we kind of essentially elevate the, the vision, our political vision of nation or tribe or ethnicity or whatever it might be to the state of ultimate devotion um, mm -hmm. is it doesn't have to be any one political persuasion or another. It just has to be something that's elevated ultimately to where it's above God uh, for it to kind of take on that, I think, and engage that spiritual agency that can yeah. in, uh, inspire horrific things. Yeah. Well, let me let me push back a little bit or kind of now that we've, I think, kind of laid some groundwork, I want to ask some questions about where, you know, how what does this look like in America, I think, in the contemporary moment? Right. And so because um, you begin the book talking a little bit about January 6th. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the forward and then your your introduction is is related to January 6th. And, uh, you know, I don't want to defend the events of January 6th. Uh, I do think that there are some people who are imprisoned at the moment for pretty minor crimes with, and they have not been given due process. Um, and, and I think that is, uh, I think that is very unfortunate, but that said, uh, there are some really horrible things that went on on January 6th and, um, and I'm not certainly not condoning that, but when you begin the book that way, I think that you, you're, you're sort of saying that, um, you're, you're sort of saying, here's a really bad example of sort of nationalism run amok. I mean, this is a, mm -hmm. this is a kind of way of thinking that, and this is what this sort of leads to. And then there are some of us who are in that, that nationalist camp, like I read earlier, right? Where it's, you know, I, I do want say my political leaders to put, to use a phrase, America first. I, I want, uh, I don't want to be part of, for example, a, a, a coalition, uh, a trade coalition or a military coalition that might involve me in global affairs that I don't want my country involved in. For example, I'm reading a book right now and it talked about how before World War II, 95% of America after World War I, 95% did not want any involvement in World War II. <laughs> well, we ended up there. I mean, probably that changed after December 7th, 1941. Right. But, you know, there is a, I think, a, a, an okay, you know, instinct to be a nationalist in the sense of saying, you know what, I really, I want, I want to, I want our nation to come first, right? I, I want, yeah. I, I want, I think it's the duty of the government, in fact, to provide for its people. Um, not, for example, sending our oil reserves all over the world or, or, or ma making sure that we have enough oil for us. I mean, is that a wrong thing, right? So, so I think that um, what, what I would kind of want to kind of figure out is in America, I mean, agreed, because I do think America is different. And that's kind of why I, I said what I said earlier. I, I think that the America is significantly different in that we are, I would argue, that we are, I mean, I understand that people wouldn't agree with this, but but we are not um, really defined by any ethnicity. I live in Houston. It's the most diverse city in the country. We have a hundred languages in our public school system here. Um, you know, people from all over the world are trying to get into America. They're coming across our southern border right now. They're coming in through the legal process. And if so, I, so I think America is not really defined by that ethnic sense. We're not defined by that religious sense if we even if we were i don't even know if we're a majority christian country anymore um and so therefore are we exempted a little bit this would be my question do you think that america can be and a love for america therefore can be exempted a little bit from some of these biblical notions of the of of, of a nation 
having its own gods and therefore loving a nation can 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 in some way be a demonic pursuit. Mm. I think it's a really thoughtful question, um, and I appreciate you for asking that. In nationalism studies, uh, there's typically a distinction made between ethnic and civic nationalism. Ethnic nationalism is uh, a form of nationalism that's built around typically an ethnic identity, um, mm -hmm. shared ancestry, shared heritage. Um, and a lot of times that can be kind of tied up with cultural values, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, right? Yeah. Um, Similar thing is at play with civic nationalism. It's basically shared political ideology is what defines the nation. And there are times where that certainly has, I think, taken on, um, you know, a particularly dangerous aspect to it. Not It does, doesn't always have to – a shared political ideology doesn't have to be a bad thing. But like in the case of France, in the case of Nazi Germany, in the case of, you know, Stalinist Russia, there there becomes basically this idea that – to depart from the ideology or the, the orthodoxy of the correct political ideology is to be excluded from the nation. I mm. think once that kind of gets to that authoritarian level to where basically you're no longer allowed to be a part of our nation, um, even if you're a citizen here, even if, you know, in certain cases, like ethnically, you, you go back centuries here. Um, you're no longer allowed to be, you know, uh, French or a German or a Russian because basically um, you don't go along with the idea of the zeitgeist of the cultural moment or the the thoughts of whoever the dear leader is at that moment in time. And so I do think that there there still can be a, a temptation to to see that 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 we I mean we even our language betrays us even that national spirit take on um, something that is more ideologically defined rather than geographic terrain or something like ethnic identity. In fact, one of the more interesting things that I've seen in, in this study is that, um, you know, the goddess Columbia wasn't a goddess that existed like in the Roman pantheon or in, you know, uh, the, the Greek theology. There is almost this intentional fabrication of a national patr patron deity in the form of Columbia. Uh, mm. Columbia, the goddess of freedom, which I had always thought was like, you know, a part of Greek and Roman mythology. It's not. It's a completely American innovation. It was like huh. we kind of we wanted to kind of play into that like neoclassical uh, adoption of kind of like those Roman forms. Um, but uh, Columbia as a, as a goddess was not a goddess that was actively worshipped in, in Rome or anything mm. like that. It's uniquely associated with the Americas and the United States of America in particular. But it is interesting to me that um, what she represents is freedom, right? Which is, you know, a great virtue of the United States, but it can also explain a, a lot of some of the most horrific things that the United States can be a part of, you know, um, something that I, I mean, just pulling my political cards here, like I, I think that um, something like abortion um, in many ways represents um, a desire of mm. personal autonomy and freedom Absolutely. at the expense of another person's life. Right. And so yes. and I, I know that there's nuance to that argument and there's there's and we don't have to get on to all that there. But the, the notion, um, you know, of a of a child's life being crushed or torn apart and his or her mother's whim is something that that horrifies me um, and something that I've noticed no matter what pagan deity you're dealing with um, it almost always can be detected by the demanding of human sacrifice mm -hmm. right and in the same way 
right? Um, not to just pick on one side of the political spectrum. I think that there are ways that um, the right can at times idolize certain aspects of personal liberty um, that directly causes um, and leads to human suffering and loss of human life. You know, I, yeah. I think it's absolutely astonishing um, that even what we call as, you know, common sense gun laws have such a really hard time structurally being able to be passed um, in the mass of, you know, a nation that is experiencing mass shootings that are exponentially at a higher rate and a higher um, number of people than other nations around the world. And, and I look at that and I wonder if, you know, the left and the right, whether you call it red Caesar or white Caesar, if, if in America, the, the chief thing that we're able to kind of like almost serve as um, in a way that can be idolatrous and demonic is a, a sense of personal liberty. And by the way, Columbia is all around our national art, right? And so like her image, she, a literal graven image stands in New York Harbor. It was the first thing that immigrants saw when they came in, right? It's the Statue of Liberty. Um, her image also is on top of our nation's capital. And inside, when you walk under the Capitol Rotunda and you look to the fresco that's you know surrounding the Duomo, it is a image. It's a painting called the Apotheosis of Washington. You know, literally a uh, Washington being elevated to a god, and he's sitting on a rainbow throne, just like Revelation chapter four. Um, he's stepping kind of into this this place where Jesus should be, and at his right hand is Columbia. And it's a really haunting image of. Yeah. That, where I, I, I just simply want to raise my hand and say, I think that's really odd that we made that choice, right? <laughs> um, that we, we literally put a national figure and put him in a place where only Christ should be. And at his right hand, we put the goddess of freedom that represents our nation and surrounded by a whole bunch of pagan deities that represent various industries of the United States and parts that make our nation go. I, I just think that's a, it's an interesting yep. notion. Yeah, that we load that much spiritual imagery and significance into something that represents um, our nation in our state. Yeah, yeah. I, I, can you hear me? Okay, because I, I can. Yes, sir. I, I think I think I froze up a little bit, but yeah, I I wrote out to the side. Okay, that's trash. Uh, when I looked at the, you know, it's on the rotunda. I I didn't <laughs> know that Washington was sort of deified in that in that way in that in that place. So, um, so no, I there there are definitely um. You know, I, I I think that, for example, you wouldn't want to uh, take away, you know, the, the God's sovereign hand in the establishing of a nation, because I, I pretty much think God is sovereign in all things. On the other hand, like Israel, you don't want to take advantage of that fact or think that you're necessarily better, you know, than other people. Mm -hmm. And so what Americans, in my view, are supposed to do with the freedom that we have is seek to live you know, a, a Christian life according to Christian virtues and the, you know, Christian ethics, et cetera. And uh, you, you kind of have to build, uh, if you believe that your nation is uh, especially Christian or something like that, you have to kind of build that case, right? That, you know, that, uh, that, that if our nation is a Christian nation, what we mean by that is that man is made in the image of God, man therefore possesses dignity, man therefore has a right to life, liberty, and property, or the pursuit of happiness, and then therefore you kind of build a government out from there. But it's more of an abstract, you know, th some, it's more of an abstraction than, than, a, than sort of the direct action of, say, the, the demon gods or even mm -hmm. Yahweh in Israel, right? It, right. It's a, you kind of have to build a case around anthropology and then sort of the nature of politics and things like that. L let me ask you this, though. 
Uh, and we're just about out of time. But I mean, would you say is it do you think it's fair to say that there are some and this is going to be provocative. So but there are some cultures or some nations that are better than others. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer, I think, is probably so um, from a standpoint of either f human flourishing or um, whether or not uh, there, there are certainly societies that are more just than others. Mm -hmm. There are certainly um, societies in which oppression um, happens more regularly and is more normative than others. And uh, and I do think that um, and I think I know where you're going with this in the sense of I, I I think it part of the thing that makes America unique and and should be appreciated is that there's a whole lot of borrowed cultural capital that is coming directly from Christianity and Christian values. That's uh, coming from Christian theology and Christian presuppositions in terms of the foundation of our nation's government in terms of how our society operated for a long time. With that said, there's a lot of ways that we were deeply inconsistent um, with those values, where we were deeply inconsistent with how um, we as a nation that were predominantly Christian at one point in time um, practiced our Christianity rather selectively, much like the Pharisees um, that we talked about in earlier parts of the discussion. But what, what I do think is um, crucial to be able to understand is that, yes, God is sovereign over nations. Yes, God has a role for nations in history. But I think it's a huge category error to conflate something like the American nation with the way that the Old Testament envisioned Israel um, as, as God's covenant people. When we start importing those categories of uh, adopting America as a covenant nation, I think that becomes hugely problematic.